Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. My guest this week is author Kimberly Stewart, who started writing when she became a stay-at-home mom and hasn't stopped since. She's the author of eight novels and has branched into writing coaching as well. As you'll hear, her path changed dramatically thanks to a gift from her mother, who was a professional musician. Kim and I talk about the importance of validation and encouragement, remembering that you are not your work, the cost of creativity, and its rewards. We also get deep into vulnerability and courage. I think you'll get a lot out of my conversation with Kimberly Stewart. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. Thanks. So I'm curious to know how you got started with writing. Is that something that you always did? You know what? I was always a reader. Mm-hmm. So I was the nerd who really wanted every summer I would set a goal to read through through the entire children's section of the library. <laughs> um, it was always a little defeating because I don't think I ever ended up making it past maybe B um, in the alphabet, but I wanted to, and I just loved all stories were fun for me. I would sit on the front porch and have my stack of library books and just kind of move through them. Um, not, not really interested in going outside to sweat per se. It was more to read. So I've always been a reader. The writing piece didn't come till later. I was definitely, um, I was the editor of our yearbook in high school, did a lot of nonfiction writing. And I think I participated in some, some writing workshops and, and things off campus during fresh or during, um, high school and college. But the, writing for me or writing for entertainment or writing um, just creatively felt out of reach to me. Um, I probably would have said that felt like saying you, I really want to tap dance on Broadway. I mean, I know there are people who technically do that, but um, I sure didn't know anybody who was doing that. Mm -hmm. I did not know anyone writing novels. So um, it really took until after an entire career of, I was a teacher in ESL and a Spanish teacher for high school. And I loved it. And I loved my students. I loved the work. We started our family and I started staying home with Anna, who's a senior in high school this year. Wow. Um, and at the time I went from a very social job to a very much with one small crying being who had her perks, but she was not communicative. <laughs> so, so when Mark, my husband would come home at the end of the day, I would attack him with questions and ask him to replay all of his conversations with mm. adults and to use a lot of multi-syllabic words <laughs> and all of them should not end in E, poopy, pee-pee, potty. So Mark was the one who said, you know, you're so scary and not the woman I married. And maybe you should consider doing something that you really love. In addition to parenting, I loved parenting, but I needed a little bit. Um, I needed to do something else with other parts of my brain um, that were just feeling foreign to me at the time. And so I dragged out my cranky old laptop and I sat during nap time um, and just started writing first these nonfiction vignettes about parenthood and what I was learning about myself and about my faith and about my friends. And then um, I ended up 
entering this little nonfiction writing contest at the University of Iowa. I, I had gotten my graduate degree there and they had in the alumni magazine, you can write this little short piece and enter it and maybe you'll win. I think about that now and I have no idea what possessed me to think that I had any seat at that table, but I tried it and I won. And I was so absolutely stunned, first of all, that they paid me in American dollars. <laughs> that was amazing because this was just an idea out of my head mm -hmm. and they paid me for it. Um, and then my mother got wind of it. And my mom is the absolute quintessential cheerleader of all things for her children. So for Christmas that year, she gave me a box and I opened it up and it was a plane ticket and registration for a writer's conference Sweet. in North Carolina. And I burst into tears. If I think about it too long right now, Nancy, I will cry because <laughs> it was such a moment of instruction for me going forward since that time, not just with my kids, but also with other aspiring writers that that little spark of you might really think about doing this or you, I'm going to just blow oxygen on that flame for you. That is such a gift that I think particularly as creative people, we just, um, it's, it's a challenge to really infuse that kind of courage in ourselves. So when someone else speaks into that, it's just such an enormous um, God send because I never, ever would have said out loud, you know, I think I'm just going to take some money and go to North Carolina mm -hmm. for a weekend. I never would have done that. We were living on saltine crackers. Um, I'd quit my job to be a stay at home mom. Mark was in grad school. Like there was, there was no margin. Um, and I think in our culture in particular, it's not a space where we are encouraged to be creative unless there's a dollar sign attached to it. Yes. So for me to sacrifice money to go was just lunacy, right? I mean, I didn't even tell anybody I went. There was no way I was going to say to my friends, hey, guess what? <laughs> you know how we're living hand to mouth? I'm just going to go head out for four days. So my mom saw all of that. My mom also is a creative. She played, she is a prof professional violinist. Mm -hmm. And so for 40 years, she played in our symphony and she had a private studio of students. And so she totally understood at a visceral level what it felt like to have a young family and also to have this quiet dream that no one else was going to probably advocate for. Not even the people you love. Our husbands are wonderful. My dad's great. My husband's great. But their brains are super different. They're both in the dental field. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, they can only enter in so much um, before it just gets super practical mm -hmm. and the logistics are just really difficult. So she got it. And I, I mean, I'm 16 years into this and I still, I told that story this week to another writer, a new writer, and I burst into tears again because there's just something so beautiful about doing that for each other. So she did. And I went down, knew no one, had no idea what I was doing. There was a, during, there was a moment during that conference where you could um, set up an appointment around the perimeter of this room, this big room, and you could go set up um, little spots of time, 15 minutes, lots of time to talk with an editor or an agent or someone in the business. I knew one single person. I knew of one person on that docket. He was an author as well. I really liked his book. I marched up to him and said, you know, hi, uh, 
I did not know there were people in that room who had been like doing the conference circuit for years. I'm glad I didn't know. I would have been totally freaked out. Mm -hmm. So I went up to this author and he was so kind to me and read some of my stuff and then stood up abruptly and said, come with me. I want to introduce you to someone. And he introduced me to an editor. Um, and she read first my nonfiction stuff and pushed it back across the table and was like, yeah, we're not really acquiring this right now. Do you have anything else? I said, well, I have the first five pages of a novel, a fledgling little tiny offering. Again, I broke all the rules. You never say to an agent or an editor, I have 40 words. <laughs> I mean, it was a little bit more than that, but not much. And she agreed. She sat and read and I could, I watched her eyes go down the page and she got to a certain point and she laughed. And I remember thinking, was that a funny part or is she <laughs> laughing at my writing? Either way, it was a toss up. She said, I like this. Go finish it. Here's my name. Write this now, write this down. And she gave me contact info for the acquisitions editor at her, at her publisher. And they ended up calling I mean, I went home and wrote the book. I didn't even have the book. I wrote the book, um, sent it in, and they ended up acquiring my first two books. So it was, in some ways, just the most beautiful Cinderella story. I had plenty of rejection and plenty of hardship coming down the pike later, but that first bit was really great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the dream. That's not usually how it goes in reality. Oh, no, it was the right time, the right woman, the right house that was looking for just my kind of voice. She's been a stalwart um, advocate for me for years. In fact, she left and went to another house and then acquired three more of my books. So we just clicked. I, I know this does not always happen. I believe me, certainly do know. <laughs> but boy, it was a real it was a straight up blessing. I don't use that word very lightly, but there's no other way to understand that because I did not know what I was doing. Yeah. Your mom gave you a whole lot more than just a ticket. She sure did. Again, are you trying to make me cry? Because <laughs> I will. <laughs> and may we do that for each other. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I only have three kids, so I can do that in that sphere a few times. But also to others, and it doesn't have to be a plane ticket right? Just saying to each other, it matters what you're doing. Yes. No one else might be saying that to you today. It matters. It matters that you're writing those words and that you're writing that song and that you're recording that piece and that you're, you know, getting back to that space over and over when no one is watching. It's such an isolating life sometimes being a creative person. Um, and so we have to do that for each other when we see each other back at it you know, year after year, day after day and working through that dumb chapter that just does not work and finally having a breakthrough or whatever. I just think it's such a powerful thing that we can do for each other. And it's, you know, my husband has a normal job. And when he comes home, I always have a little bit of snarky attitude around Christmas because he'll say, well, we're going for a Christmas party. We're going to go have a Christmas party. And I'm always so annoyed because I think I don't have a Christmas party. No one's giving me a Christmas party. Who's going to give me a Christmas bonus? Nobody. But you know what? I need to get over myself and I need to call my friends who are doing the same thing and say, hey, happy Christmas. Good job. You did it. Here's your bonus. I'm sending you a coffee or something, you know, just to say to each other, I see you. Yes. Right. That's why we write anyway. That's why we create anyway, to see each other and to remember we're not alone. So 
We got to do it for each other. Nobody is throwing you a party, brother and sister. You're going to have to like step into that yourself and do it for others too. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what, what you give to others comes back to you. I, I interviewed a poet last year who said, you know, supporting other artists is supporting yourself. Mm. And I think he's really, really right. And, yes. you know, and, and you're right. It doesn't have to be the plane ticket. It can just be, I really like this thing that you wrote or that you painted mm -hmm. or that, you know, whatever it is. And you should keep doing it because yes. there are so many voices out there saying, eh, that's just the stuff you should do in your free time and you should get a real job. And if it doesn't make any money, there's no point. No, I don't think that's true at all. Right. I think when we're no. creative, it really connects us to who we really, really are. It's the stuff that enriches the entire journey. It's what gives three dimensions to what we're doing. So it's so, so valuable. We have to just be clinging to and pointing to that North Star that reminds us it's valuable because we might not hear it elsewhere. Um, and all the more that we would that we would encourage each other along the journey. Um, I heard this week a statistic, um, and I'm sorry, I can't cite. It was in an interview, so I, and the, the, the person didn't cite um, where he had read this, but he said that 81% of Americans say that they want to write a book. Less than 1% actually do it. And so huzzah to you <laughs> for doing it. You know, yeah. I mean, a lot of people think about it and nobody does it because it is really hard work. Anybody can write a pamphlet. Mm -hmm. Not very many people want to sit and actually have the discipline to write an entire book. And so if you know people doing that or in whatever sphere, or whatever discipline, what a lovely thing to say, good on you. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, Nancy, when you say, you know, after you've consumed that piece of art or consumed that, um, um, as a bystander, then to write the email or then to write the note, we all, don't you feel a different like shiver of, oh, that's awesome when you hear from someone who's doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's lovely when your grandma says, good job. But if your grandma's not a writer, she might not fully understand what it costs you if another writer says to you, another poet or another singer songwriter says to you, hey, that was fantastic. I don't know, my shoulders go back a little bit more, you know, I stand a little straighter to hear from someone who has been in that trench and still says so great. So anyway, yeah, let's do that better for each other. I think. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. That's part of why I do this podcast. I love and it. Do coaching, you know, it's like, love it. Cause, cause we don't always hear that stuff and maybe, right. you know, and, and you know, the other thing is when you talk about like the 1% of people who actually sit down and write a book, I'm immediately wondering how many, how many more people sat down, never got past the first page because they looked at it and they said, oh, this is crap. I'm no good at this. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and, and literally gave it like five minutes, maybe an hour totally. tops and said, this is not for me. It's never going to happen when actually they probably could write that book. Right. But first they need to just realize that, you know, first drafts are never good. No, you know, for anybody. Oh, no, ma'am. No, I think I, you're so right. I'm the, I'm in this spot in my life. I've been writing for a long time and I've loved it. And I've had the great gift of being able to be in, in publishing for a long time, but my current 
the, the thing that's making my heart skip beats right now is, is coaching. You mentioned it mm-hmm. yourself, um, coaching aspiring writers. And I am absolutely loving it for so many reasons. And one of the reasons is I get to enter that space with them. That's usually super private where you're on your own in front of your laptop and saying to yourself, this is absolute drivel. Mm -hmm. I should not be doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. And on your shelf next to you, all these beautiful books with barcodes that have been through 8,000 revisions, but you don't see that part. You just see the final with the pretty cover. And so I hadn't anticipated before beginning coaching, how much, um, how much internal emotional work there would be. I had thought it would be mostly let's look at your pages. <laughs> and really there's quite a bit of, um, let's look at what's underneath the page, right? Let's look at, at why you are so reticent to tell this part or why you're so reticent to, to jump in and let's actually tackle what's going well in your head when you're writing every day and what's not going well, because turns out those are absolutely as important, maybe more important than the, than the words that end up being on the page. Because when you write with freedom, it's a very different process than when you write with a big fat imposter sign across your forehead, you just can't get to the good stuff. And so, um, it's been so, it was, it's been an honor to do that. And also it's been really good for me personally to revisit some of the, um, I'm writing my own stuff at the same time. And it's really helpful for me to be hearing myself say to someone else, the stuff that I'm going to need in an hour. Um, and I'm very good at ignoring my own wisdom. Uh, I think it's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous to myself. It's amazing. Um, so it's just, I think it's, that's, that's part of, it's so beautiful for the coaching piece and I've loved it so much. And it's also such a good reminder over and over that to, to do this costs you emotionally. If you're going to do it well, you got to dive into some things about yourself that we don't really necessarily have to face when doing the dishes or picking mm-hmm. up the kids or what have you. So, yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because first of all, with the much better at coaching other people than myself thing. Welcome to the human race. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no joke. We all are. But right. but you know, it's interesting that you that you talk about that in terms of a cost because there's also a whole lot of liberation that comes along with it. Mm. If you don't look at those things, you can't ever free yourself from them. That's exactly right. Well said. You should be a coach. <laughs> And yet it is. I mean, it's terrifying. There are plenty of things that that I've encountered and probably still have to encounter that I'm, I don't want to look at that. Totally. But, you know, if you don't, you're going to stay in the box that you're already in. If you do, at the very least, you'll end up in a bigger box. I, and I also, I think it's just a plug for good work. You know, I think the best work, the best quality writing, the best quality creative endeavor comes out of a place of cost and sacrifice. I think if you're just skimming along the surface, it's, it's lovely. It's wonderful weather up there, but there's a different depth of human connection when someone has, is writing from a place they just really didn't want to go. I don't know. This is still a theory in progress. I'm writing a nonfiction piece right now. And I have my, the bulk of my writing, my eight books are all, are all novels. And boy, this is a different animal in some ways because I don't get to hide. Mm, (laughs) It's horrible. (laughs) I mean, in, in a novel, I just make someone up. It's fantastic. 
and you can make them do whatever you want. And if you don't want to go there, then you can have a character go there. And maybe even a character you don't like very much. But this nonfiction stuff, I'm required to mine my own stuff and mine my own fear and insecurity. And um, it's kind of brutal. And also it has a different um, shimmer and beauty to it, I think, because it, we love vulnerability as readers. We love knowing when someone is just going to tell the truth. Um, but boy, I've got to silence that inner editor like a ninja because <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Like it's a different gig when it's your own thing as opposed to, oh yeah, I just made that person up in my head and you can hang out with her for a while, but that's not really me. Right. So yeah, but that's where the good stuff it's, is. That's what I'm saying. That's where the good absolutely stuff is. where the good stuff is. That's the the double edged sword, right? Just got a white knuckle through it, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but it builds courage, right? Right. You know, and and I think creativity always takes courage. Mm. You know, like you were saying before. I mean, it's really really easy to not do the thing that you dream of doing. It's totally. the easiest thing in the world. Absolutely. But, There's no risk there, right? But if you really want to do it, that also has its own pain because you know Absolutely. you're dying to get up on stage or, you know, mm -hmm. learn to fly a plane, whatever it is, and you're not doing it. So, so there is that, that sense of being stuck in that tiny, tiny little box. Right. And so what's that, that quote? Ah. Uh, the quote about how you know eventually one day it becomes more painful to stay locked mm. in I think the metaphor was a, a bud but it might have been a box mm. I don't remember than it is to blossom and you know yeah you you have to if you really want to do the thing and if you know you really want to do the thing and maybe even feel like you're here to do the thing eventually you're going to reach that point and the real question is which which way do you go you know, because if you don't take the chance, then you're probably going to end up even more tightly in that confined space. Absolutely. And that takes its toll. Whereas if you Absolutely. finally say, well, maybe I'll open one pedal, see right. how that goes. And if that goes all right, right, maybe we'll go for two, you know, and right. in a decade, I might get to all of them, you know, which sounds ridiculous. Absolutely. And I am exaggerating only slightly because sometimes you have to take those tiny steps and kind I of say, so. I don't think it's an exaggeration. You know? I think you move the piece a little bit forward on the chessboard every day Yeah, and you're not going to win the whole game in one day. I think that's what stops people. Yeah. Um, and, and so well said about the bud or the box or whatever metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a sound one that there is a cost right? There is, a, there will be a cost. There's a cost if you step out and there's a cost if you stay put. Mm -hmm. So count that, right? Count the cost and decide which one you want to take. Um, but the taking isn't Everest. I think that's where a lot of us get stuck. I certainly do. I think I need to start out in the AP level. Yes. You know, right. My, my daughter's taking these AP courses and, and she absolutely is, she works super hard and she's doing a great job, but no one would have said to her as a second grader, today is the day you take your anatomy class. Right. But for us, for some weird reason, we think, well, we need to, you know, I, if I'm going to do this, 
I better have all of my ducks in a row. And turns out the duck doesn't even come down the bend for a while. Like right. just, just get out on the sidewalk. Just take your first step. I have a friend who, who talks a lot about putting a few horses in the race and just seeing which one runs the fastest. And that's very freeing for me as a creative person. Instead of thinking, I'm writing this book and this book is going to be my magnum opus <laughs> and it needs to be today. I mean, that's ludicrous and completely unattainable, but I think, I know I'm thinking that way sometimes like this, this has to work instead saying, I'm going to do a little bit on this today. And then I'm also going to do a little bit in this sphere for a day. And I'm going to, I'm going to push this piece forward a little bit today. And we're going to see how fast something runs instead of banking on one thing all the time. That has been super helpful for me, um, in this stage of my life and in my creative, my creative work, not I'm not waiting as much as I used to. I think I used to to write and submit and wait. And turns out that's actually fairly destructive to a human soul if you because you have no control over someone else's yeah. response. And I'm talking to someone who is starting their very first short story today to the person whose book is releasing on Tuesday and you are hyperventilating into a paper bag. All along that continuum, it's easy to start thinking all I ha- all I can do is wait, and that is false. We are not we aren't condemned to that inactivity. So even if you have a book shopped right now, shopping with your agent or it's wherever whatever process, I'd say go start your next one. Right, go work on something else. Go if maybe it's not even in that same area. Maybe you go and you know, create something completely different. You paint or you draw or you cook or whatever. I think it's super helpful to not be just twiddling my thumbs and hoping someone likes it because the bad news is there's never an end to that. Right. First, it's an agent, then it's an editor, then it's a publisher, then it's a reviewer, then it's an Amazon reviewer in Poughkeepsie who had a bad burrito and wrote a bad review and it can ruin your day. And actually it was just her burrito. So what I'm saying is if we keep waiting for other people to push this along or to validate, it is a losing game, period. It is a losing game, whether it's Poughkeepsie or your father-in-law or your child. I mean, it, we cannot, you can't wait for that. And I think if, I think a lot of creative people get into the trap of thinking, well, I'm done mm-hmm. now. I just have to wait. And I think it's dangerous because you're giving other people agency, um, that they just can't carry. That's a kind of hope that they can't, that's, they can't carry the weight of that. So we can't give it to them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and also on top of all of that, it's just the fact that if you keep going, you keep your creative momentum going. And then yes. the next time you sit down to write, it's not, oh, I have to start from the bottom of the mountain mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. You know, it yep. you just keep, keep doing it keeps you in that place. It's that whole, you know, object in motion tends to stay at motion thing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. No, such good words. I have a little teeny tiny writing trick that I do um, in that same vein when I'm in the middle of a project and I, I, I never finish my writing day at the end of a chapter. I always start the next chapter. I never end it at the end of a section and feel like, ah, great. That was a fantastic end. I'm going to go get coffee. I make, even that that's what I want to do. I want to shut the computer and be like, ah, <laughs> success, but I don't let myself because if I just do that one next 
bit, that next paragraph, that next sentence, moving into the next day's work, the next day, I've already jumped off the high dive. I have committed. You know what I mean? I am midway through the, the crawl stroke or whatever. Like you, I'm not, I'm in the middle of the pool. And that is so helpful. I cannot believe how much time I can fritter away at the beginning of a creative session. It's amazing to me. I amaze myself with how ridiculous I am. I see squirrels. I look outside. I think about the laundry. I'm, I mean, I got, I have so many ways I cannot work. So if I'm building in that buffer and just continuing onward, um, it's been a huge help to me. And I think that's for, that's a small view of that concept. And similarly, we can do that in bigger, in bigger ways too. You're done with your book. You're done with your song or your album. You're done with that piece of pottery. Okay. Well, it's time to start the other one. And at the beginning, it's going to be stink again, mm -hmm. right? The rough draft again is going to be horrible, but you already know you've done it. You already know you've done one whole thing. So just keep on in that, you know, keep moving. I think that's super helpful for me. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe other people are rolling their eyes and thinking, no, sit down and wait a little bit. And there, there's a space for that too. Um, but if I wait long, I start, it becomes all about me. It becomes all about who is reading my work and who is responding and what great things have I heard. And that gets gross really fast. And I give other people, um, a responsibility that they can't bear. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you let the self-doubt creep in, you know, cause it's not just, what are they saying? It's, oh, they hate it. I haven't heard anything because they hate it. And I've, I've, I'll be, the other one was just lucky and I'm really actually terrible and I should never have started doing this. And what was I thinking? And that stuff never, ever spirals to a good place. My friend said to me a couple of weeks ago that silence is a weapon. And I thought, well, that is an interesting sentence. And I've been tossing that around a little bit. And it's true. We can, I can use silence and create an entire dialogue that does not exist. I'm really good at that. Maybe, maybe all novelists are. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I make up entire conversations. Oh, well, she hasn't emailed back. So I guess she doesn't want the book. And I guess she hates it. And also like, what? No, she just didn't email back. Mm -hmm. So the more we can fill those silences with things that are actually true, I think it's just better for us as human beings and as people who are, are working on creative projects. Yeah. Well, and since you, since you mentioned the bad burrito. <laughs> Did you have one? <laughs> I've, I've had the bad burrito experience. I've, oh, no. I've had the, you know, the first time you read the bad review of your book experience. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious to, to know, I, I mean, I think everybody has it at some point and, and I'm curious to know what your experience with it has been. Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so first of all, I will say I have always taken heart in the urban legend, which may or may not be true. And please don't Google it and tell me it's not true because it's been very comforting to me. <laughs> um, I've heard stories before about how Stephen King used to give writing lectures and the ticket of, an, of admission was a rejection letter because he said, if you haven't been down that road yet, um, we really don't have a lot to talk about. So I appreciate that, mm -hmm. that someone who has sold 80 gazillion copies of 80 gazillion things fully recognized this is, you want normal? The normal is a rejection, right? Um, so that is helpful to me. I've, um, yeah, 
on a smaller level, like Amazon reviews, online reviews, um, they can be soul crushing. And so I don't read them anymore. And everybody has their own gig with this. I have lots of writer friends who just are far more evolved than I, and they're able to read those and really think about what they're saying and kind of like have it inform their future work. For me, the book is out. Mm -hmm. So if you really don't like chapter seven, there's just not a lot I can do about that. And so it's not helpful for me. I think it's just my personality that I can read 98 fantastic reviews. And the one that I commit to instant memory is the 99th, the bad burrito. So I don't feel that it helps my writing to read them. And in fact, I just, um, it even might hurt it because then I'm thinking of Poughkeepsie instead of the story I want to tell next time. On a, on a larger scale, I wrote five books and was shopping my sixth and my agent was taking it all over. And it, for 18 months, he took it to all sorts of different publishers and they were all very polite and said no. And I wasn't getting any helpful feedback at all. It would just, they'd say, we just either, you know, we just acquired something like this or great voice. We love it. We're not interested which is not super helpful mm -hmm. because I don't know what to do. Right. Um, so that was a long season of feeling like, wait, do I, do I know what I'm doing? I thought after five, I'd kind of have, you know, maybe crack the code a little bit. Nope. I felt completely marooned. Like the rules had shifted or I didn't ever know. Maybe I never knew the rules. So um, yeah, rejection can be super painful. It can be, um, very instructive. It can really, I mean, I think we have the choice, you know, how much are we going to take this in? First of all, is your work you, because that's an issue, right? I mean, if your value and worth is wrapped up in something you've made, that's, I don't know that that will ever end well mm -hmm. because, um, we aren't who we make or what we make. We are who we, you know, our worth is, is, intrinsically who we are. And for me, faith is an important part of my life. And so, you know, I return always to, I believe I was created. I am, a, I'm creating things, but you know, I've been fiercely loved period. And so I don't have to keep swimming upstream and showing, Hey, I'm really worth this, but boy, that's a different, when your job is to create stuff for people to to enjoy or consume, that can get really tricky. You know, if you start putting the cart before the horse and thinking, oh, that what I'm putting out is actually who I am, or the way it's received will tell me what I'm worth, then that's a danger zone. So I'm constantly revisiting that that's, you know, getting that in the right order. Um, but it can teach you things too, this rejection gig. I mean, I, um, I ended up finding an, a freelance editor didn't know any of my other work. There was no preconceived anything. She, I just sent it to her cold, this troublesome manuscript that people were saying nice things about, <laughs> but didn't want to buy. And she was painfully honest. She called, um, she was in Canada. And I remember sitting at my kitchen table and thinking, okay, she's going to tell me what to do. And she sent this before she called, she sent this document. It was like a 15 page document and it shredded the book wow. start to finish 
by the way, I did pay her to crush me. <laughs> and so I was sitting there like, oh my gosh, it was like just point after point. I think you're trying to be funny here. I'm not getting it. You know, I hate this character. She's like, she just was like point after point on the like sixth page. I got to the bottom of the sixth page and it said, I really like your, and then I had to go to the top of the next page to finish the sentence. And I thought, okay, so here's where the tide will shift. And she's going to start saying things she likes about this book. And she said, I really like your formatting. <laughs> formatting, Nancy. Oh. She was saying, good job with your pagination. Yeah. I really appreciate your font. So it was brutal. I finished reading the letter. I you might have noticed already, I am a crier. <laughs> I absolutely started to sob. Mark comes in the room. My husband came into the room. I was like, I'm going to be a bake teller. <laughs> I am done with this job. What kind of a sadistic job is this? You pay people to tell you you didn't do it right. <laughs> so he is very logical and incredibly more calm and much smarter than I. And he said, you know, I can see that this has been very devastating. I think maybe just give it a couple weeks before you quit entirely. And he was right, of course. And at the very bottom of her email, she had said, call me when you're, if your ego is not too bruised by this letter, call me and we can talk about this. So after two weeks of pinning cushions into her voodoo doll, <laughs> I... I called her. I took her up on it. So I was like, you know what? I paid you. I want you to say this to my face. <laughs> and also I was like, is there anything I can take from this? Well, obviously on the phone, as most of us are much kinder in person than she was on the blank, brutal black and white of a page. And here's the problem. She was completely right. She mm -hmm. was right. She was right about that book. She saw I was way too wrapped up in it. I had 18 months of nursing my wounds and reading this piece and thinking, why doesn't anybody like it? I like it. And she was right. She said, you're writing a book. You're not letting yourself write the book that this is. You're making this, you're trying to force this into something that it's not. I was trying to go darker, more literary, mm. a little bit more Oprah's book club. And you know what it was? It was Sleepless in Seattle meets the Food Network. That's the <laughs> book I end up writing. It was a Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie. That's what I wanted to write. And that was the undercurrent of that whole book. And she plucked it out and said, here's your book. This is the book. Wow. You're writing something else. So um, she said at the end of that phone conversation, you can send me the first, if you want to send me the first 25% if you end up tackling this again. And I think she thought there is no stinking way this lady's going to do this. It has already been so painful, so much time. She's not going to do it. I started over on page one. I started that book over on page one. I kept the main character and I changed absolutely everything else. Um, and that I sent it, I sent the first 25% to her thinking, if this isn't it, I am going to yodel or basket weave or do some other hobby because I'm done ski. And she loved it. She was effusive. She's not an effusive person, but she was so kind and loved it. And that book ended up being picked up by Target stores nationwide. It sold beautifully. It got all sorts of lovely. It got into lots of people's hands. And the reason it did was because of rejection. 
that book came out of nearly, very nearly quitting absolutely everything forever and ever. Amen. Um, and I'm not telling that story to be like, hey, good job, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It was brutal. It was horrible. I hated it. I hated every part of it. I didn't get excited when I started on page one again. That was long gone. That was 18 months prior was page one. This was page 500 mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but it was worth it. And it taught me a great lesson about humility. And it taught me a wonderful lesson about really asking questions and wanting to hear the answer, because that's not always how I ask questions. Right. I, right. Don't we ask questions and say, I have your script. If you'll just read here, you're supposed to say, I love this part. And yeah. that's not always true. And the kindest thing someone can do for us sometimes is to say, you're writing the wrong book. You're, you're trying to force a square peg into a round hole. This is not the book. You yeah. have the book. You just haven't written it yet. Yeah. yeah. And you may not even know you have it. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like there's so much good stuff wrapped up in that story too. Cause like, mm. you know, the whole idea that you are not the work. There was a, a fellow student in my MFA program who didn't seem to understand that. And, mm. and you know, I could totally relate to that because you know, I knew what it was like to sit there and say, please love the thing I made and have someone say, no, sorry, this is terrible. And you're like, I'm a horrible person. Yes. And, and yet watching him, I mean, he would literally turn beet red, you know, Mm -hmm. in an advising group session where, I mean, and I went to Goddard college, which is low residency. So we would have like a couple of advising group sessions a week. And it was usually like no more than three pages that we'd written for an assignment. It was a spontaneous assignment about this particular theme or topic. And that was it. So it wasn't even like it was his thesis, you know, and, and maybe I've just realized they were kind of throwaway pieces, right? They were never going to turn into anything else. It was an interesting experiment, you know, but, but when we would talk about them and it was not the kind of cutthroat workshop, environment that you sometimes hear about in MFA programs at all, which is why I'm really glad I went there. It was much more of the encouraging, how can we help you make this thing better? And he would, I mean, he would turn beet red. It was like, you know, the, the old commercials where somebody would eat something spicy and the steam would come out the ears and you'd be thinking, it's okay. Nobody Mm -hmm. is attacking you, Mm -hmm. but he really believed that we were. And, and I, I hope that you know, since then, because it's been enough years now, and and maybe even that somebody, you know, an advisor or another student or somebody managed to explain to him, look, this isn't about you. This is about taking what you have and making it better. You know, it's not that we think it's terrible. It's that we can see the potential, but we, you know, you you know, you might not see it as well because, you know, in his case, it's it's probably half an hour worth of work. But like you said, you know, especially when you're in it for 18 months, you can't right. see anything anymore no. and you need somebody else to look at it. It's true. And, and I feel like, you know, I saw a post on Instagram recently where somebody was saying, you know, the first step of writing is writing the thing down, hating it and deciding to keep writing. And, you know, that, that step of keeping it. on is the most important step. And someone reacted to it and was like, I'm really not into this self-loathing thing. And I was like, it's not about self-loathing. It's about everybody does this. You know, oh my goodness. it's totally natural 
to do this. That's fascinating that that was the reaction. Yeah. And it reminded me of that guy in my class because I thought, mm. well, yeah, if you're taking it that way, right. then I, you know, you could totally end up in self-loathing territory because you're convinced Absolutely. that you are the thing and the thing is terrible. And therefore, so are you, which is, you know, one of the worst places you could possibly end up with, with anything, Absolutely. you know, but, but I also, I, I can totally relate to the idea that, you know, as soon as you try to force something to be something it isn't, it's not, it's not going to go well. And as no. soon, but on the other hand, as soon as you decide to let it be what it is, it's kind of like people, you know, if you try to force a person, you know, if you want the person that you're dating to be the person you want rather than the person they are, right. good luck. <laughs> but if you let them be the person they are, they might actually turn out to be better. At worst, right. they turn out not to be the right person for you, but at least you know that and you move on. And I think it's the same thing, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that, that Michelangelo quote about just removing the parts that aren't part mm. of the statue, it's kind of mm. the same thing, you know, you, yeah, know that's what beautiful. it is. Right. And then you sit there and you go, wow, look at that. That's really right. cool. That's not what I thought it was going to be, but that's actually really cool. Maybe it's cooler than I expected. Right. Yeah. And we don't know. That's the thing. I think we don't know. It's such a human tendency to just want to say, here's how I'm going to get to where I'm going. And there's just is no GPS with this kind of thing. I mean, we can do it. We can, I make my roadmap before I write my book and I have a good idea of kind of where I'm headed, but necessarily I need to give myself the freedom, um, to write the, to write the book that I don't even, I don't have the end yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Nonfiction or fiction. I just, there has to be that exploratory phase. And the other thing is it will get better if you allow other people into the process. Now here's my great big giant caveat to that. Not just anybody. Okay. Amen. You don't just ask anybody. I mean, a lot of people are, can't be trusted basically with this kind of thing. And that doesn't mean you can't be friends with them, but they don't need to be your critique. Partner. Right. You know, I've heard so many stories and I've endured some of them myself where, you know, when you share something in process, you're basically walking around naked in front of someone. And I have had three children. And so I want to tell you that there's not a lot of naked walking happening around here. Same with my work. I know now that there are certain people that can handle this. And that is a very short list because um, they need to be people who have been through this pro. In my opinion, for me personally, I need someone who knows what it means to write an entire book. Doesn't really help me if, um, that the other person hasn't really been through that process. I also want someone who will really listen to what I need and be able to do it. So in other words, I'm not saying, can you copy edit this for me? Can you tell me, oh, she was wearing a blue shirt in the front of the scene. And at the end of the scene, she was in a green shirt. That's, that's great detail, but I actually don't need that right now. I need you to tell me, does this resonate with you as a human as a human being? Does this chapter make you laugh or cry or feel or think something? That's what I'm going for. I'll deal with the shirt later. So if I'm talking to someone who really just wants to talk about commas and semicolons, that's going to be very defeating for me because that she or he is going to be looking at something. I'm not even, I don't want those glasses on yet. I'm not even looking at that. I need to know, is this moving you? Right? So we have to be super careful who we just thoughtful, I think about where we share the work. Do we share it? I believe wholeheartedly. Yes. Because 
this is, you cannot write in a vacuum. You can't create in a vacuum. At some point, someone, you're, you're doing this for human beings. So you've got to let them in at some spot. But being mindful of really what you want, and if you're really willing to hear the answer to the question, coupled with, is this person able to speak to that? Because if not, I just don't think it's super helpful. I mean, I know sometimes when I want, when I want someone, when I want the moment of you're doing something that matters, this is so, this is important and it's good. Then I call my mom, obviously, right? Of course I do. And of course she's going to say, this chapter made me cry. She might be lying because she is my mother and she loves me more than any word I ever write on a page. That has its place. I mean, I have had many moments where I'm like, I am done. And she is a perfect voice to speak into that and to say, no, you're not. You're not done. This might not be done, but you're not done. Okay. You keep going. This is important. This, this, is, this is worthy of your time. If, however, I want someone to absolutely shred it, I can't call my mom. I can't put her in that position and she doesn't want to be there. So just knowing our knowing our people, knowing our tribe and who's going to be able to do what for us and then letting them do that in an honest way. I think that is the best thing we can do for them, but it's also really good for whatever we're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause if you want it to be the best it can be, then you need that kind of feedback. Sadly. Yes. Right. Haven't you had, I'm sure Nancy, I'm positive many times when you share your work and there is like this theme that come in that small group that you discussed. Several people say, yeah, I totally did not get this section. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, wait, what? I wasn't even worried about that section. <laughs> I thought this section needed help. So you can't get that in a vacuum. You can't get that right. by yourself. Or even if it's just, I don't understand what happened in this paragraph. Yes. And you sit there looking at it and you go, I don't understand what you don't understand. How is this not clear? Right. And yet if it's totally. not clear to one person, it's not clear. You have to mark it. Mm -hmm. And what a, what a lovely thing to hear from someone who already loves you saying that or cares for you instead of Poughkeepsie <laughs> on Amazon. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I know that it's, I, we talk about this a lot when, and with my writing coaching clients, this is terrifying. This is terrifying for you to share this with me. But let me tell you, I am so on your team. I could not be cheering more loudly for you. And you want me to do this. You do not want a reviewer to do Amen. this. You don't want someone who doesn't have any vested interest in you or your work. Take it to me first because I, I'm the safest place. So even though your, your colleague and, and his beat red face, I feel for him because he actually was missing out. Mm -hmm. That was the safest space ever, ever. Ever to share the work. Um, it gets way, the, the, everything ratchets up a notch when it's anonymous. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I also think that it's super important when you start something new, not to just like, Oh, Hey, I have five pages, read this and tell me what you think, you know, yeah, like yeah, you've yeah. got to let it gel into something, you know, I mean, that's, that's like, it's barely even a molecule much less yes. an actual object. And if somebody right. reads it and doesn't understand the first five pages and you haven't built up enough of it in your own head that it's real to you, you've probably just lost it because then you're just going to question absolutely so everything. Smart. So smart. I mean, we have to be really careful with momentum. 
I think momentum is precious. And so if we can guard it, we need to. So if you are in a good spot where you're cranking out new words and you're moving along, it might not be the best time to share your new work because that stops the momentum Mm -hmm. because then you're, you're not on chapter four anymore. You're thinking back to one and how your friend said they didn't understand so-and-so. I just feel like that can come later. If you're hungry for input, it might be good to go for a walk with someone and just chat about a character. Right. And you don't even have to give them the whole, the whole Monty, you know, you don't even have to tell them what the whole book is about. Just say, you know, I'm, I've been really tossing around this, the idea of this person. When I say this, what do you think? You know, just give really, if you're really wanting to have someone speak into what you're doing, it has to be the most trusted person ever, but keeping it very general instead of giving them pages that they would see, maybe that will scratch that itch for you. But I, I agree with you. I, I think we have to be, um, just pretty thoughtful about when we show the actual Mm -hmm work and then be willing to gird up or, you know, come, come with open hands, right. Come with a huge dose of humility and in your head, say to yourself before you get to that meeting or before you get to that appointment, this is a rough draft. Even if it's not super rough to you anymore, this is rough because it hasn't been out there Mm -hmm. yet. So you say, I say to myself, it's not done. Isn't that great? It's not done. Yeah. So I can take whatever I want from this conversation, but it's not done. I can still do stuff to make it better. Yeah. It's hard. That is hard. I mean, we're talking about this. like, this is like, you know, walking to the grocery store. This is so <laughs> hard. I mean, maybe it's not for you. For me, it is so hard. It has not gotten, gotten less hard because I, in, in fact, maybe it's gotten worse because once you have work out there, there's a little bit of an expectation that, you know, oh, I guess you know what you're doing then. And I don't feel like I do. So it's difficult. It doesn't get less difficult to be vulnerable, I don't think. But it gets um, the payoff you realize is so much better that you're willing to. Mm-hmm. Maybe the willingness gets better, but I don't think it gets any easier per se. Yeah, I, you? Think, I think you can get better at it as a skill and, and get better at understanding that, you know, this is necessary and this is doing something for me because I can't see everything and I need the perspective of other people. And, you know, I think also when you've, when you've done it enough, you, you start to understand that even something that you might not understand or, or just flat out disagree with at first, like, what do you mean you don't understand this paragraph? It's perfectly clear. You know, right. When you yeah. stop and think about it and it, it may take, you know, I mean, you may, you may dismiss that at first and say, there's nothing wrong with this paragraph. I'm leaving it the way it is. But, but when you keep reading through it, as you go back over it again, you know, eventually you may figure out why it's not clear. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, you might say, you know, I still think this is clear, but I can see how I could make it better. Yeah. You know, it, right. like you start to find that that even, you know, your initial reaction may not really reflect reality and that given right. time, it, you know, some things will will click right away. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you suddenly look at it and go, how did I not see this before? But other things may need to filter through a little bit, but there's probably right. at least a little bit of truth in there if you're willing to look at it. And that's really what right. it is. It's it's the willingness to look at it and it it's the willingness to let it not be perfect. You know, which is kind of what you were saying about it's rough and isn't that great? Yeah, because you can make it better. 
you can end up on the opposite end of the scale when you're so busy trying to make it perfect that you've written one book in 20 years because you're still going over it and you've probably made yourself crazy by then too. But, but, you know, if, if you listen, if it's, if it's feedback that's given in good faith and by somebody who knows what they're talking about, or maybe not, you know, sometimes it's the person who's never written anything who notices the thing that you don't, but true, but it's also, I also feel like it's so important to remember that not everyone is your audience. You know, right. if you're writing a romance novel, don't hand it to the horror fan. Right. And vice versa, because they're not going to get it and they're not going right. to like it. And, you know, you gotta, you got to allow for the fact that not everybody's going to like your stuff because that's just large numbers, you know, right. and, and you, you oh, know, you but figure Nancy, right there. <laughs> That I put that on a t-shirt, right? That is really, again, we, I, we say that and I believe it, but boy, I have to revisit that Mm -hmm. over and over because when you spent that much time with something so important to you, it feels like everyone should like it. Yes, your baby. Right? Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're so wise to say that. And I feel we need to say it over and over and over again to ourselves. I'm not writing to everyone. I am not writing to everyone. Not everyone's going to love it. It took me years to just, uh, even in my close circle of friends to be like, yeah, it's not for everybody. You know, yeah, it's okay. I get it. It's not for everybody. And just to really actually believe that and feel that and give people the license to like it or not like it. Yeah. Because again, your work is not it's you. It's not you. And not right. everyone is required to like it. And and honestly, one of the biggest gifts anyone ever gave me was the day that I read the first bad burrito review, which I think is what I'm going to call them forever now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Awesome. I don't know how... you know, it feels like dumb luck, twist of fate, whatever, that one of the friends that I told about it knew about two different articles that were purely bad reviews of famous books that are very well regarded and sent me those two links. And I got to tell you, reading the New York Times review of The Handmaid's Tale Because I've read The Handmaid's Tale and some of the feedback, you know, because they panned it, just completely panned it. And I'm just sitting there thinking, this is a bloody brilliant book. What was wrong with you? You know, and so it's like, okay, I'm in super, super good company because they didn't like The Handmaid's Tale. I think The Great Gatsby was on the list. I don't I don't remember what all else. And also one of my grad school advisors told me that she once got a review that that said that she was the worst writer in the history of the universe. And that she okay, we we've launched out of Burritoville. Yeah, that That person had a lot of things going on. Okay. But what was funny about it was that she said she wished that she still had it and had it framed because she looked at it and she just thought, well, there's nowhere to go but up, is there? And it it took the pressure off because like, well, hey, I'm the worst writer in the history of the universe, so I can do whatever I want. I mean, listen, our our listeners can't see my eyeballs rolling (laughs) to the back of my head, but they are all the way back. Here's the thing. Let's just have one moment here where we just make a pact among creatives. Now, some people are not going to like this, but I think this is very sound. Unless you have a moral obligation to do so, don't write a review like that. Just 
don't, right? Just agree that not every book is written, just what we're saying. Not every book is written for you. It's for somebody else. Great. Don't even do it. Like I, I'm getting old and cranky. And I'm <laughs> at the point now where unless you are compelled by, um, like there's something in the book that is morally repugnant to you. I just don't even write it. I don't write negative reviews. And the reason I don't write negative reviews is exactly what you're saying. Not everybody is going to get every book that the author of the book that I just read and I don't like someone else might think this is the best stinking book I've ever mm -hmm. read. I'm going to buy eight copies for all of my friends. I don't need to, I don't need to have my voice be a part of that conversation. And the reason is also, I think that writing good writing is, um, alive. And so in five years, I might write that. I might read that same exact. I know we've done this. I've done this. I've come back to a piece of writing and thought either what did I see about this the first time or what did I see before? We have to give ourselves the license to do that. And if you write a review and it's up there and for time forever, I just think it's putting a stamp on something that might shift for you and also saying, because I didn't like this book, you shouldn't like this book. So right. I have very strong feelings about this. I think obviously because I, this is my bread and butter and those reviews, you know, publishers look at those perspective publishers, look at your back, back list and say how many five star, not just four stars, five star reviews you have. And what are people saying? It's just that the weight of that has become so wonky that I think we just have to have a conversation about having a little bit of human decency and a little bit of reticence. If you don't have fantastic things to say, maybe just don't even say them. I mean, my dad said that all growing up, mm -hmm. you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. And in this construct, someone else might really love that. And you might be just poisoning the well on a whim. Right. Right. I just don't do it. I, and, and on the same token, if you love a book, you just get your computer out right now, Missy. <laughs> and write a phenomenal review because it's like giving a chocolate cake to a writer because they stay up forever and ever. And so it's entirely possible that an agent or editor five years from now will read that review and it will tip a scale in favor for that offer. So it's author. So it's such an easy five minute gift mm -hmm. that can, that just pays itself forward over and over. Um, so anyway, that's my little tiny impassioned plea <laughs> that if you hate a book, just shush. You don't have to be, I mean, or you can even email the author herself. I would prefer that. I would prefer if someone hated my book, I would prefer her to email me and say, listen, this rang false. I hated this, blah, blah, because I'm a human being. I can talk to you as a fellow human being. I can't do anything about it if you shout it from the rooftops and then go back to your cribbage game. I can't help with that, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's my, I don't know if anyone will agree with that, but for me, unless you have something fantastic to say, first, at least give it some time, right? Don't write it the second you finish the book. And second of all, mean it. Like really mean it. If you really hate the book, please go ahead and be honest. But if it's just on a whim and you're like, I hate this book, I'm going to get it. Or the worst, I liked this book, but it came shipped. It was shipped three days late. Yes. And the box was broken. And then it's a one-star review. And the cover was torn. Please tell me what I could have done to help that. Zero. Right. I could have like, done nothing. That's, that's a review so. of Amazon oh. or Barnes and Noble or whoever you bought the book from. Yes. It's not a review of the book. 
No, it's yeah. just killer. It's killer when that happens again, because of the permanency of it. So just tread lightly, be kind to each other, please. Reviewers, just be kind and try to remember this is someone's like, this is two years of their life, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, just be, just be nice. You don't have to buy other copies, but unless you think this is, I will die if I don't write this review, maybe don't. What do you think about that, Nancy? Am I being, am I might be being picky? I kind of am, am slightly torn on it. And only because I know that, you know, Amazon counts the number of reviews not the quality of the reviews. Mm -hmm. So if somebody, you know, like my book has been out for a little bit more than five years and I have 36 reviews and I know at least five years ago when I was paying more attention to it, 50 was the magic number that once you hit 50 mm -hmm. reviews, Amazon would start doing more to promote the book. Like recommending and so book. like, okay. you know, I've, I asked people, it was like, look, you know, even if you didn't particularly like it, uh. Oh, any review is better than no review. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I also think that, you know, there are definitely people you can tell the people on Amazon who are used to writing reviews and usually they have some kind yes. of label on their name or whatever. But but there are people who really know how to leave a thoughtful review of a book. Yes. There are people who obviously don't and want to review the box or the spine rather than the actual right. words on the pages. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be, you know, eight pages long and totally no. effusive. It can be, I really liked this book and I'm looking forward to the next one. Done. That's it. You know, it could be a three-star review said, not my favorite book, but there's a lot that I really liked about it. And you might too, right. you know, I, I mean, because that's the other thing, if they're all five-star reviews, that looks suspicious too. And right. so, you know, I, I actually even said to one of my friends one time who'd read my book and I kind of had the sense that it was just not really her thing. And I said, look, I need you to go leave a really honest review on Amazon because, you know, make it, if you think three stars is the right thing, make it three stars. If you think it's mm. two, whatever, just because right now everything that's up there is all five and I don't want, right. you know, I mean, I know it's oh, not a perfect book yeah, and I sure. don't want it to look like, you know, I don't know some of these people, I can figure out who they are, but a lot of them, I don't right. know. I don't want it to look right. like I paid for reviews that I didn't. Right. I totally. don't want it to look like, you know, everybody's just being super dishonest. Right. And, and the funny thing is that, you know, the number of stars that she gave it and what she wrote didn't entirely seem to match, but I didn't care. Oh, hilarious. You know? Should have given more careful instructions. But, Are you but I mean, it was, Track. it was fine. You know, it was like, oh, good. Now at least there's something there that disagrees slightly because that's what life right. is. You know, nobody's right. going to like it the same way. So, totally. so in a way, you know, if I had 14 people sign up right now and give it two star reviews, but it got me to 50, I don't think I'd complain. Oh, okay. but at the same time, you know, it's like, I think it depends on where, where you are with it. You know, I mean, right. you don't want people to be looking at it going, there are no bad reviews. That seems unlikely. Why is that? Right. But you know, if, if it's, you know, you've got 300 reviews and 50 of them are one star reviews and whatever. I don't know. I mean, at that point, I don't know why, you know, if you've got something bad to say about it, I'm not sure why you'd bother. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I'm kind of like, I totally get what you're saying, right. but I also think just leaving a review at all makes such a difference. Right. So, no, so that's yeah, true. it's kind that's of, true. kind of hard. And we're kind of fumbling our way through this. You know, it didn't used to be that that was, um, we just have a different level of 
responsibility as consumers than we than we did. I mean, when I was growing up, I first of all, no one was reviewing books other than the book review in the New York Times. Like it's not that wasn't I didn't know anyone who did that. Right. Um, certainly. And now we all do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I guess I'm I guess my my heartbeat for this would just be to do it thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. Right. Not it, and again, it does not to be a it please don't write a thesis. We don't need a thesis. <laughs> But just put a little bit of thought into two sentences. And I prefer that to, um, you know, on your phone, not liking the last chapter and giving it a one star. Again, because they have such a long shelf life. It's not a conversation. It is up forever. Um, And, you know, a lot of folks don't know when we've done different um, ad campaigns and such. There are some very um, visible I mean, it's very common with advertisement and marketing for book. Um, I'm, I'm not finding the right word, but because I don't want to use the names of these people, mm-hmm. but people who have big imprints in the in the industry and who are advertising on behalf of authors and publishers, they have a threshold of how many reviews you need to have on Amazon to even put out an ad. So I can have the money to say, hey, here's my money. Will you tell people about my new release? And if... I don't have a certain number of five-star reviews. It's not just reviews. It's the number of five-star reviews. They won't even look at the title. And so that's a little deflating because you think this is, you know, this is just people who took the time to sit down. It's not even indicative of maybe how many people like the book. It's just people who took the time to sit down and to talk right. about it. So I guess I'm saying because there's a weight in that camp now, we just all need to maybe do a, a better job of really supporting the people that we love yeah. and the, the books that we love because that has legs for a long time. Well, and also, you know, if you're constantly writing negative reviews, what does that say about you and what does it do to you? Well, Nancy, obviously, you know? I think it has something to do with the burritos. <laughs> the burritos. Something's Stop going wrong. The burritos. <laughs> something's going wrong at lunchtime, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something else going. But on. I mean, and again, you'll I, feel we better. We can't control that, but no. But but as somebody who might leave a review, you'll feel better leaving a good one. Yeah. You or know? you know, sprinkling in some good ones among right. The negative. I mean, and if there is something that is truly objectionable, that's that's one thing. You know, I mean, I don't Absolutely. think anybody's Moral talking repugnance. about Gobi Pollyanna. Absolutely not. But yeah, but you know, and and Tosca Lee and I talked about this too. You know, leave a review. So many people do not understand right. how important reviews are, and I'm sure that yes. it's much the same. You know, with music, and it certainly is yes. with podcasts. Subtle hint, not so subtle. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. But but you know, they make a huge, huge difference to the people who right. make those things. So if you really loved a book, if you took it out of the library, you know, leave right. review is a great way to kind of you know say thanks since you didn't actually right. pay for it. Purchase it. And libraries right. are great. Nobody's dissing libraries here. Um, but, no, no. but, you know, they make a massive difference, especially if it's a new author and you want to see more from them, you right. know, go, go leave a review. Yeah. Chocolate cake. That's what I'm saying. Yep. Every single day it's chocolate cake and it keeps on keeping on. So. Yep. It's a good way. It's, it's actually circling back to where we started, which is there are ways we can, you know, breathe oxygen onto these fledgling mm-hmm. dreams. And that's a really easy, practical one. Yep very easy. So I'm, I'm really kind of sorry that we're out of time because I feel like we could just keep sitting here for another couple hours. I think we could. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think we could. I've banned all of my children and my schnauzer from this room and I'm having such a lovely time. Maybe we should just do another few hours because it's been so peaceful. <laughs> Thank you for having me. What a great conversation, Nancy. It's been so fun talking. Likewise. You. Thank you so much for coming. That's it for this week. My thanks to Kimberly Stewart for joining me. I hope you'll try something you've been wary of trying, give yourself permission to fail, and leave a review for a favorite author or musician, or for this podcast if you're enjoying it. It has more of an impact than you can imagine, and we truly appreciate every single one. Thanks so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.